This is this is fine. This is fine. This is, this is fine. fine. This is fine. <laughs> this is fine. This is a poor substitute for therapy, but an excellent substitute for other podcasts. We're not like other podcasts. Join us as we find the answers to the universe's biggest questions like is butter a carb? Does crying burn calories? And what the fuck am I doing with my life? We're here to be your part-time therapist, astrologer, concierge doctor, and fairy godmother. Do you need someone to validate you today? Cool, cool, cool. Come on in. We're fine. This is fine. Welcome back, gorgeous listeners. I hope you're having an absolutely fabulous week wherever you are at whatever time you're listening to this. You've made it back to your podcast home, and I'm so happy to have you here. Today, we've got another episode centered on the brain, and this one's pretty intense. Our guest, Brett Stanley from The Smart Fit Method, which as some of you know, is the fancy AI gym I go to, but more on that later. Brett was awake for a five-hour brain surgery, awake while someone was operating on his brain. He has clearly lived to tell the tale, and tell it he will on today's podcast here in our San Diego studio. All right, Brett, welcome to This Is Fine. Thank you for joining us in the studio. Thank you for having me. Of course. So we start every episode with asking the same question, as you know, since you've listened. Mm -hmm. Are you fine today? I am fine today. Fantastic. Are you extra fine because Stella is pawing you right now? Yeah, that definitely adds to it. <laughs> the therapy dog <laughs> is desperate for attention. It helps. Okay, good. So you're feeling good and you're ready to share some stories today. Yeah, I can't some wait. Some spicy stories. I'm excited about this one in particular. We haven't heard anything like this on the show. So thank you for volunteering something so personal as well. Of course. So let's just start with introducing yourself. Our audience hasn't met you yet. Where are you from? What do you do? And how did you end up here in the studio today? Yeah. So my name is Brett Stanley, and I grew up in Connecticut. I uh, was there until I was about 19 when I switched colleges and moved out here to San Diego, where I've been ever since. It's been about 15 years. And I've been a personal trainer for about 12 years. Uh, I recently got a job with a company called The Smart Fit Method, Woo! <laughs> and that is actually how we met. So I'm the operations manager of the La Jolla location, and you are one of our ambassadors. <laughs> I am one of the ambassadors, and I tell everyone how much I love my quote-unquote robot workout. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not technically a robot workout, uh, but it is, and we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, it is an AI-driven program. There are three machines, technically four. I feel like Big Five is like broken up into two machines. Yeah, right? they're both but strength training, but they're, yes. they're separate. But it's like three different workouts, and you do one of those per week, and each of those workouts is 20 minutes, and everything is tracking you at basically every second of your workout, and that's complemented by a biometric body scan. Is that the correct terminology for that? Is it biometrics? Um, it's a full so like, body scan. Right? It's like that, sort of like a DEXA scan, but without the radiation. Correct. So it uses infrared, so okay. it's not you're not being exposed to the radiation like a DEXA scan. But we do that once every 28 days with our clients, and mm -hmm. it does like lean body mass, body fat percentage, as well as a postural analysis and then different circumferences of the body. Yeah. So you get all these measurements, and it's like, oh, I've been doing this for, you know, six weeks, and this, you know, there's a 0.5-inch reduction in my waistline or something like that. Or like my biceps are 0.25 inches bigger on both sides. Or there's a bit of a disparity. There's um, an imbalance. Like one side is a little bigger than the other. Or I'm putting too much pressure in my left foot versus my right foot. These are all things that you can sort of fine-tune and tweak that you wouldn't necessarily get in a different kind of workout, in a different kind of gym or environment. So if you are nerdy about those kind of specific details or you love technology or you're looking for something that's very, very optimized, you don't have a ton of time, 
you're a busy parent or a busy individual, or you're just looking to get the most work out of 20 minutes, this is one of the best ways you can do that. I have written about it before on Well and Good, and I will link to that in the description as well if you want to read a little bit more. But I have personally benefited quite a bit from this. Uh, I don't even want to call it a workout, this program, right? Yeah, I'd say it's a, a, a method of working out an exercise yeah. to give like the, the short and sweet plug would be that we're a cellular health and longevity company. Cute, that uses, love. <laughs> yep, and we take the latest technology in the fitness industry, a lot of machines that have only been available to high-end athletes or celebrities for the past decade, and we're bringing it all under one roof. Uh, combining with personal training to give a safe and effective workout in three 20-minute sessions a week. Love it. And I personally, I love taking like a slow hour for yoga or Pilates or a nice long walk. And I still enjoy this. So I don't want anyone to think like, oh, well, I actually like taking that whole like time for myself. I won't enjoy this. It's very complimentary. And you do get something that is so effective and transformative in such a short period of time. It's sort of like a concentrated dose. Like you can still like eat a really delicious meal and take a supplement, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the concentrated dose is going to help you get somewhere a little more quickly while you can still enjoy like those mental health benefits of like taking that full hour pause to go on a walk or something. So that I just wanted to plug that as well because I feel like I've had a little bit of a reaction from some friends like, oh, I actually really like taking that hour to myself. Mm -hmm. You can do both. Like why does it have to be one or the other? But if you also are someone who's like, I don't have that hour, I'm so busy or, you know, I just got a lot going on at this season of my life. Like the 20-minute workout is shockingly <laughs> brutal. <laughs> I don't want to scare anyone off, but like uh, the first several times I did the the big scary strength training robot one called, it's the Smart 5 and the Smart 3, correct? Yeah, so it's basically like the three to five major movements of the body that you're doing. Yes, so you do leg presses, you do chest presses and pulls. Yep, yes. rows and pull downs. Rows and pull downs. See, this is why we have the trainer here. I don't know these terms. Um, the first few times I did that, I had to sit for another 20 minutes because I was shaking so much. It was crazy how much got done in such a short period of time. The way that my muscles were responding was as if I had just like run a half marathon. It was kind of crazy. Yeah. I'm sure you see that a lot. Oh, definitely. And so what's going on there is we like to say we're extracting the nectar out of the exercise, (laughs) meaning we're presenting you with this stimulus. Yeah. (laughs) Right. That is what makes you adapt. And so for the strength training aspect, we're using what's called the motor unit recruitment principle, which is Mm -hmm. basically the longer that a muscle is engaged, the more motor units or muscle fibers it's going to incorporate into that. And so the machines, they move slowly through a range of motion that's preset for each individual. And what happens is each rep, you're engaged for almost for about 14 to 15 seconds. And so when you think of like a normal free weight exercise, like a bench press or a bicep curl, you're really only getting like a second or two of time under tension per rep, whereas here you're getting 14, 15 seconds. And so what's happening is you're, in, uh, you're recruiting more type 2 muscle fibers which people don't tend to do because they're not exercising in a way that's engaging the muscles for a prolonged period of time. Usually it's engage and then a slight rest. So when people are done with this, they feel a fatigue that's very unique to uh, unless someone's specifically training very slowly, which is starting to be uh, seen in the fitness industry. Yeah. The especially the eccentric exercise or part phase of the workout. So a dynamic motion meaning a movement has a concentric phase where the muscle Mm -hmm. is shortening under tension and an eccentric phase where the muscle is elongating under tension. 
And it turns out that focusing on the eccentric actually has higher hypertrophy output, meaning the muscle tissue growth is going to be more substantial. You get swole. (laughs) Exactly. When really focusing on that eccentric, which a lot of people are just letting gravity kind of take the bar down. You could imagine for a bench press, kind of just let it come fall down to the chest and then they're pressing on the way up. Right. You think that the, the move, the move of the exercise is over after you've stretched your arms all the way out, like you're laying on your back and you're doing a bench press, right? So you push that barbell or dumbbell, whatever it is, over your head, and you're like, okay, that's done. Now I can just release back and bend my elbows. But mm-hmm. that is half of the exercise right. that is often neglected, correct? Exactly. Okay. And then you're also kind of, you know, it's also wasted time. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very efficient workout program because each second that you're there is basically putting in effort. And yeah, like you said, you're only there for 20 minutes or one hour a week, 20 minutes, three times a week. And so it's going to be a tough 20 minutes. Yeah, it's a hard 20 minutes, but it's honestly any level can participate. Like he said, the settings are different for each person and AI is involved. So can you explain actually a little bit about how AI works with these machines to adapt to that person's skill level and strength? Yeah. So one of the machines or modalities that we use is called the Carol. It's an Mm -hmm. AI bike. And what it does is you get a profile where you input your uh, statistics, you know, height, weight, all that stuff. And then you do calibration rides. So you do some sprints, two 20-second sprints. And during those sprints, it's calibrating how much force you're generating. And then when you go into the next phase, it adapts the resistance in real time to if you're sprinting or in a recovery phase. So, um, Like what you're ready for that specific day. Exactly. So a lot of other models like the Peloton, that kind of thing, they have a dial where the rider kind of adjusts up or down. This one, you don't have to do that. It adjusts to you in real time as you ride. Right. And it's adjusting where you actually need to be versus where you want to tell it that you need to be. So if you're like me and you do have, oh, I just sold it. But if you had a Peloton like me and you're like, okay, this is the range, but I think I'm all the way down here at this end of the range. Well, the AI might say, well, you just did this on sprint. We think you can do it here. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of nice where it does take the guesswork out of it. It does make it a little bit tougher. But again, you're getting the most out of your workout. So that's an excellent example of the AI Then we also have, we haven't talked about this yet, my favorite machine is the Vasper. And this was like a Tony Robbins favorite, right? Or like Dave Asprey or maybe both. Uh, Yeah, both have commented on it. Um, And if I recall correctly, um, Tony Robbins actually travels with one in a custom-made pod. (laughs) Of course he does. And (laughs) and brings it on his private jet wherever he goes because it's basically like getting a full-body workout. Yeah, I also do that on my private jet. (laughs) Yeah, every time I travel. Of course, it's a necessity. (laughs) So the Vasper is using cryotherapy essentially it's like cold water so it's technically not a therapy because you're working out but it uses this very cold water is it is it 45 degrees yeah it's just about 45 i'm like do i know the stats Mm -hmm. it's 45 degrees and it's pumping it into these cuffs around your arms and your legs your um biceps and your your thighs your quads Mm -hmm. um and then you've got the blood flow restriction on top of that so if you've ever had like your blood pressure taken in the doctor's office it's sort of like that where it squeezes around your arms it's 45 degrees arm or 45 percent arm 65 leg or yeah and you know it it does squeeze like a blood pressure just a lot less it's not cutting off the circulation right yeah you're not gonna feel numb (laughs) right when you get your blood pressure done it actually has to basically cut off the circulation in order to feel the heartbeat and you know this because you were an emt correct (laughs) yes so i don't know if we mentioned that no but uh yeah so definitely having that uh knowledge has helped in in the fitness industry. yeah so you have like a traditional medical background in addition to personal training and Mm -hmm. then you have this additional with like the ai 
woven into it and these very specific optimized machines. Right. And so what's going on is it's restricting the blood flow and the movement to induce that feeling of workout fatigue. So you imagine if you're doing like a dumbbell curl and your bicep starts to get tired, you feel that quote-unquote burning sensation. Mm -hmm. And on this machine, what we're doing is we're inducing that in a controlled manner where you're going to work out the entire time. So the whole 20-minute protocol, you're going to be feeling that workout fatigue, but you're going to, we can up or down the resistance and the pressure so that you don't have to stop. And what um, is going on there is we're actually targeting your hormonal production because that feeling of workout fatigue is a metabolic stress. And a lot of what exercise is, is basically presenting the body with a stimulus that our body then adapts to or responds to. And the way that we respond to this feeling of workout fatigue as we're working through it is it signals our pituitary gland to increase IGF-1, one of our growth hormones, lower cortisol, our stress hormone, and in turn, that raises our testosterone. So it lowers cortisol. Yep. Wow. And are these percentages of like what it's raising or lowering different based on your biological sex? Um, I'm honestly not too sure how much that plays a role in it. I yeah. do know that most of the studies were done with males. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if they have one specifically That's sex-oriented. pretty classic for, for any kind of sports yeah. science study. It's almost always on men. Right. And actually, NASA was one of the cooperators of inventing this machine. So the new step right. platform made the machine itself, and then NASA sort of added a couple of components to it. Uh, and they use this with astronauts when they re-enter from outer space because a lot of them have their muscles and other parts of their body have atrophied, but also their right. hormones are not working properly. And so it allows yeah. for a high-resistance exercise with minimal impact on the joints. Right. And this is also a machine that's used for patients who are recovering from cardio uh, or cardiac events. Yeah, like, or like spinal injuries. Right, spinal injury or heart issues. Like uh, they're going through re- rehabilitation. That's the word I'm looking for. So if you're not an astronaut, but you've been through something traumatic like that, this is also a great machine as well. Right. I would love to see SmartFit do some research on female athletes or even just female participants to see if the hormone shifts. Because that's the first thing I thought of. I'm like, oh, it changes mm-hmm. your hormones. And I'm like, but for who? <laughs> right, right. And um, to go on... Uh, what you're saying about the cardiac event. So mm-hmm. basically the way the company got started, and I'll give my quick little shout-outs to everyone in the company. So uh, Rob and Connor Darbro were the co-founders of Father and Son. And, and they're so awesome and sweet, and we love them. <laughs> they are so great. Yeah, I'm so happy to be working for them. And um, Rob, the father, was diagnosed with, I'm hoping I'm saying this correctly, an aortic aneurysm, I mm-hmm. believe. So in the heart, and he was a... Uh, professional cyclist. He was training some bodybuilders in his life. And basically when he was told that he really couldn't work out, he kind of started to, you know, go into a bit of a depression and he realized that, you know, he wasn't getting the proper stimulus he was looking for. So he started to research ways that he could work out again that would be safe for him. He came across this machine, the Vasper, found that it was actually good and safe for him Mm -hmm. and could actually help improve his condition. And as he was doing that, his son said, hey, you know, you're getting such great success using this. And he was just about to graduate from college and said, hey, you know, can you help me be an entrepreneur and turn this into a method for the general public? So cool. And they worked on that together. They brought in some exercise scientists to see what machines and what combination worked best. And this is kind of what they came up with. The Uh, secret recipe. (laughs) Exactly. And then to also give a shout out to Mina, my direct boss. She manages all the locations. We love you, Mina. (laughs) She's great. And then to the other trainers that I work with, 
Ray, Jeshin, and Lewis. They're great. And then the owners of my company are Mark, Jimmy, Colleen, and Shantae. Big so, hugs to everyone. I've met every single one of you, and you're all amazing. <laughs> they're all great. And if you're ever interested, you can check us out, The Smart Fit Method. And we would love for you to be a part of our little community growing yeah. every day. Come work out with me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I love that we talked about AI, like workouts of the future, getting this going, and got your background, which I think is really great going into what we're about to talk about, mm-hmm. the main course of this episode. Yeah. You have experienced a very rare very specific, very scary experience that is basically the plot of a movie. Mm-hmm. Do you want to just get right into it? Sure. So I had what is called a cavernous angioma. It is a tumor of malformed blood vessels or capillary beds, so basically the end of your circulatory system. Normally those guys are feeding you know, muscles or some sort of tissue to bring blood in and out. And what happens is, as I was told, about 1% of the population will have these microscopic anomalies that are basically where the capillaries aren't really attached or going to anything. And most people will never know that they have these, and it will never be an issue. A very small percentage of those people, myself being one of them, will have these anomalies proliferate and grow over the course of their life to the point where it starts to become an issue. So basically, it's they will leak blood into the brain. Fun. In an area where it's not supposed to be. <laughs> totally. And that will cause some issues. So <laughs> Just a um, few. <laughs> yeah. And it you know, kind of depends on where in the brain it happens. Um, for me, mine was located in my right parietal lobe, mm-hmm. and it was about the size of a small marble, so like okay. three square centimeters about. So the way I found out about it was one night I woke up after having a couple alcoholic drinks, like three or four beers. As one does. Crazy. <laughs> yep. Uh, I was 27 at the time, and I woke up and I was very hungover is what I would have described it as, where I had sensitivity to light, I was kind of dry heaving all day, just overall did not feel great. Awful, yeah. And, you know, I was just thinking at the time, oh, this is just me getting older at all of 27 (laughs) years old, and my hangovers must be getting worse. So I tried to sleep it off all day. The next day I woke up, and when I walked into my living room, my roommate at the time just looked at me and said, Brett, you do not look good. Like, something is up. Yeah, not even in a mean way. Like, I'm concerned for you. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happened was it happened to be like a holiday Monday. So I was like, oh, I was thinking about going into a walk-in, but they were all closed. So what I did was I called my nurse's hotline. And so the nurse on the other end is like asking me some questions. And uh, they asked, do you have a headache? And I said, yes. And they said, is it on one particular side? I said, it's on my right side. And they said, is the left side of your body numb? And I looked over and I pinched my left arm and I was like, yeah, <laughs> it is numb. And they said, you need to go to the hospital immediately. Yeah. And so that's what I did. Uh Drove myself there, and when I walked in, I kind of told the nurse, like, hey, I think I'm having, like, an aneurysm or something. (laughs) And she looked at me kind of like, you in disbelief, like, hey, you wouldn't be walking in here if that was happening. But you were. (laughs) Right. Not technically an aneurysm, but I was having bleeding in my brain. Right. So, you know, I explained what was happening, and as I started to say, oh, I got a headache, and this side of my body's numb, you could tell the concern on her face was starting to increase. And so they got me in for a CAT scan came back and said, hey, you know, you do indeed have some bleeding in your brain. We're going to bring you up to the ICU. Now, this whole time, I'm like gradually still 
getting worse, meaning my oh symptoms like are physically and mentally. Right. I'm yeah. still getting more and more nauseous. My head is hurting more. And I imagine panic was setting in at some point. Yeah. I knew at that point that like something was wrong. I mean, when I woke up that second morning, I was like, and still feeling bad. I was like, okay, this isn't great. And right. then as soon as my roommate said that, it's like, okay, I can it's tell bad. something's up. Yeah. So over the next a couple hours or so, I was still deteriorating, meaning my headache was getting worse. And they were basically prepping me for emergency brain surgery. Because they didn't think it was going to stop on its own. So they... This is not like you pause, you schedule a brain surgery for like a week or so from now. This is like you're getting yeah, rushed Yeah, this in. is like yeah. this person's brain is bleeding and it's getting worse. Yes. So, and part of it is it hurts a lot. You know, it's one of the worst pains you can have is in uh, what's called an intracerebral hemorrhage. Right. And as you're experiencing this pain, it's going to increase your heart rate and blood pressure, which is going to cause this vicious cycle of more bleeding. More blood. So yeah. really what they were trying to do is basically get my pain under control. So I was getting okay. the good stuff, Dilaudid. And, oh, yeah, Dilaudid will really knock you out. Uh-huh. had that. <laughs> yep. And so... You know, they called my parents from Florida to have them fly in. They had me fill out a forward directive, which is basically like a last will in case something was going to happen. That's not going to chill you out. Right. Oh, my God. um, But luckily, it did end up stop bleeding, like right on the verge of having, you know, they were basically looking for a surgeon. And then I started to get better. So my pain got under control. My heart rate, blood pressure started to go down. I started to feel a little better now. At this point, I had digressed to the point where I had lost about 80% of the sensation on the left side of my body, like straight down the middle. And that was because it was in the right side of the brain, which um, upon getting an MEG, a magnetic electrogram, this was done a few months later, uh, they basically found that the location of the tumor was on like a trisection of left-sided sensation, which is why I lost all that sensation, left-sided motor control, which I never really had any deficiencies in that. That's and then, fortunate. Right. And then language, which was surprisingly the third one. The uh, Is it the Broca's area or like... Uh... Not too sure. For aphasia? Anyway, I'll look it up later. (laughs) And that was interesting because there were times where I'd be talking to people and they would tell me I'm not making sense, but I didn't realize I wasn't making sense. Yeah, it makes sense in your brain. Exactly. I I can't remember if that's Broca's or or Wernicke's. I'm going to look it up while you keep talking. (laughs) Yeah, so... So that's pretty much how it happened and how I was made aware of what's going on. The recovery from that was basically I spent about five days in the ICU. Wow. And then I was about a week or so in the regular hospital after that. I went home and about three weeks post-hemorrhage, I woke up at like 3 a.m. in my bed and the vast majority of the sensation had returned to the left side of my body. Okay. Basically what's going on there is that your... When there's blood in your brain, it's going to be pushing on brain tissue and is going to cause uh, dysfunction. And it takes a long time for your brain to reabsorb that. So over this time, it's slowly, you know, reabsorbing oh, blood. Because it's then, like, where is it going to go? Back into your circulatory system. Exactly. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And then so I'm not exactly sure if it reached like a pinnacle moment and maybe like something shifted a little bit. But all of a sudden I woke up and I basically had like an overstimulation going on where like I couldn't fall back asleep. And up until that moment, I couldn't really feel the left side of my face. So, like, the sensation of, like, feeling the sheets on my bed with, like, my hand and feeling my face was kind of kept me up until the next day. Yeah. Interesting thing that was going on before that was when I would take showers, the left side of my body wouldn't prune 
because that's actually a neurological response. Whoa, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's so a lot crazy. Of people think it's like, oh, you know, like you're cold or something. But really, I thought it's, it was like osmosis or something, like water was leaving. Right, and what's yeah. going on is your body is attempting to make more surface area because okay. you're slippery. So it's to aid and basically, yeah, and and how interesting! Things. I never knew that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. The bleeding stopped on its own, or that was from surgery? It stopped on its own. So I didn't actually get surgery at that moment. Okay. Okay. Got it. Right. So there's kind of like two. That was super fortunate. Right. right. Yeah. It just like stopped, and you're like, cool, I guess. (laughs) Okay. Right. So then, you know, I recover as, as, Best you can. And I was told, you know, here's the deal. You have this thing in your brain. It's about an inch in, so it's not too deep. Uh, But there's about a 2% chance per year that it's going to hemorrhage again. Okay. So you can either leave it in and take your chances, or you can elect to have a craniotomy and have it removed. Wow. And so I decided to do that. And it was interesting because I was also given the choice whether or not to be awake or not. Okay, let's stop right there. Okay. What? <laughs> yeah. So the the pros and cons are obviously if you're asleep, you don't have to experience any brain of this. surgery. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I'm sure freak out most people. I was sort of interested in almost the story was part of it. But, okay. But the other aspect was that it is technically safer to be awake when you can. Wow. Because if something goes wrong, you can let the people know. So they can be asking and checking in with you the whole time. What do you mean if something goes wrong? (laughs) Well, for instance, there was a moment where my left arm went numb. Oh, and you could tell them that. So you can feel things from like the neck down. Yeah. Where does sensation stop in this? Right about the neck. Okay, so you can't feel anything like your head. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whoa, that's got to be a trip. Yeah, you basically get like big shots, like nerve blockers, like in a roundabout fashion, like all around All over your head. Uh-huh. And so, shit. like, everything from then up, can't really feel anything. Okay. Um, you also get, like, uh, is it local anesthesia or there's another word like, for it where basically, like, the whole the body systemic or something. Numb. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Intravenous anesthesia. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so I had that going, too. So I was so, very relaxed. So you're relaxed. You don't have anesthesia to the point where you're unconscious. You have it to where you're relaxed. Mm-hmm. And then you have the local anesthetics and the nerve blockers in your head. How do you, can you still, like, talk? To oh, yeah. tell them, okay, so you still have like motor control in like your mouth and everything. You mm-hmm. just can't feel. Correct. So I'm thinking like when you go to the dentist and you're like tripping over your own tongue. Okay, right. so you can still like communicate, but you are, oh my God, I'm like <laughs> tripping out on this. You're awake. So they gave you the option. Sorry, let's like mm-hmm. go back a little bit. They yeah. gave you the option. They laid out the pros and cons. Mm-hmm. Did they sway your direction? Yeah, so you know what the main thing was is that when you are awake, you don't have to be put on a ventilator. So oh. when you're completely under, you have to basically have a machine that breathes for, for you. you. Yeah. And that can actually cause complications later in life because Whoa. there's a time period where your body is not breathing. And that was the most scary to me yeah. was to think that like a machine was going to be breathing for me. Yeah, you don't have great options laid out in front of you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I said, you know what, let's go with the awake thing. you telling me it's safer. I don't want to be put on a ventilator. And I'll get a good story out of it. So here we are. (laughs) I love everyone who approaches this. We've had it happen a few times on the show where they're like, well, it was for the story. (laughs) But I haven't heard to this day someone staying awake during brain surgery for the story. So kudos to you. That's a a first on this show. (laughs) Okay. So you chose to stay awake. Mm -hmm. 
And then they scheduled it. They got you right in. Like, how? what was that process? So, scheduled it, like, about two months out, which allowed me oh. to actually go home back oh my God. to Connecticut. I and would spiral so hard two months. Yeah, it was it was a ways out. Oh, and my God. Okay, sorry. I just interrupted you. You went home to Connecticut. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, kind of, like, saw my friends, let them know what was going on just okay. in case something happened. Oh, God. <laughs> I believe they gave me, like, a 0.5 to 2% chance of, like, permanent damage or death. So like, you know, oh you my might God. come out and not be able to talk or something because something could go wrong. And, you know, it's a it's a small percentage, but it's obviously something that you want to take into consideration when you're like, oh, one out of 50, one out of 200 is going to have something like severely wrong happen. Yeah. But the other side of the coin would be, am I going to just have this ticking time bomb in my brain the rest of my life? Which was also about a 2% chance, right? Correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So it's like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, not great options, but, yeah. you know, with, with what I had, I kind of just decided that that seemed like the right I've, thing to do. I feel nauseous even thinking about how I would feel in that position. Mm-hmm. I haven't gone through anything close to that experience. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you emotionally and mentally? Yeah, so emotionally, it was it was odd because I knew it was coming, and I knew I had, like, the support of my friends and family. And I think I kind of, like, psyched myself up into it as best I could, and honestly, it wasn't until, like, the moment I was going to go in that, like, right. everything really, like, came on. Yeah. yeah. So I could give you kind of, like, a little step-by-step of how the actual process went. Yeah, please. Okay. So, basically, I go in, and my family is out here now. So, okay. like, the last time before we're like, hey, we're going to get this going, my sister, mom, and dad come in. I kind of, like, say, you know, see you on the other side, that kind of thing. Um, and then the first thing they do, they do the nerve blockers. And this was funny, be good. Dang, but yeah, so that's I, I really out. lucky. Yeah. Was it here? It was in San Diego, obviously. Was it UCSD? It or? was. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, thank God you were in like the Shangri-La of medical care. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So at one point I hear him say, and you know, I kind of learned all this after, but basically he goes, uh, I need a number two scalpel. And then I hear, that's a number four scalpel. I need a number two scalpel. That is a number six scalpel. Oh, no. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, someone's getting fired. <laughs> like, can you imagine it's your whole job to just hand the someone correct tool. <laughs> and they're not doing it properly? And I was like, I found it funny in the moment. Well, that's I'm, good. A little relief. Right. Oh, right. my God. I would just be thinking, how big is that scalpel? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, that stood out because it was funny. Another aspect was at one point he asked for a certain device. I think it was like a clamp or something. He was like, hey, call down to such and such department. We need uh, this. I can't remember what it was. And so now we're like, nothing's happening. And like 30 seconds goes by. And uh, he says, who did you talk to in that department? And the guy's like, or someone's like, oh, I don't know. I, I just called down and asked for it. And they go, well, you need to call him back because it should be here by now. And then there was, like, this moment of silence, and he goes, do you see what's happening right now? Oh, God. Like, basically being like, we're sitting here with this person's brain open for an item, and it should have been here already. Yeah, like, (laughs) where's the urgency? Yeah, Yeah. so I I remember being like, is that the same guy who's handing you the wrong stuff? (laughs) Like, Like, somebody (laughs) is getting fired, actually. So that was, you know, unfortunate, but honestly didn't really face me all that much. It was, like, in the grand scheme of things, I was just like, whatever. Okay, so nothing too traumatic. Well, the only thing that was traumatic <laughs> well, oh was at one point when they were, like, in there, like, I'm not sure if they were in the process of cutting it out or still, like, accessing it, but, like, 
I know at this point, skull is off. They're oh, get, God. They're getting okay. in yeah. there, right? And all of a sudden, like, my left arm just went completely numb. Oh, like, shit. Couldn't move it, couldn't feel it. And I told my neurologist, hey, can't can't feel the arm anymore. Yep. And they were kind of like, hey, Brett, like, we're almost done. Like, we're getting you out. Like, hang in there. And maybe, like, 20 seconds later, like, the feeling came back. So okay. I'm not sure if they, like, moved some things around or what exactly Reattach. was happening. Yeah. <laughs> but I did know that they were, like, in the end phases of it when that happened. Wow. So that was that was good. Oh, so there was this one other thing that the doctor actually, the uh, surgeon actually brought up afterwards because he thought it was funny. He thought it was funny, which was when we, when I first, well, the last time I met him before going into surgery, he was like, you know, so I'm going to be the one doing all of like the major stuff, but there is this guy who's my assistant here. And in my, and then at one point during the surgery, I heard the main surgeon telling the other guy like, hey, you need to cut right here. You need to cut here. And I and I went, Doctor Carter. I was under the impression that you would be doing this part of the surgery. <laughs> and he just responded very calmly, "I am Brett, but it takes two people to do this part." And I just went, <laughs> "Okay." And he said after he's like, "Yeah, okay. I was very." He's like, "I never had someone question my ethics in the middle of brain surgery." <laughs> that sounds on brand after everything I know now. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh that, my gosh! So you got through it unscathed. How many hours were you in there? I believe it was five, about five hours. Wow. Yeah, they told me to be five to six, but they said it went pretty well. The fact that it wasn't like just a five-hour panic attack is a triumph. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, and I think the anesthesia helps quite a bit. And, for sure. You know, the, the prior mental prep. And so, you know, get finished up, get wheeled out. I was in the hospital for less than 48 hours post-surgery. Wow. Yeah, so I'm actually sitting in my bed and in, in the hospital and the nurse comes and is like, hey, like, we think you're ready to go. So we're going to get a um, we need a wheelchair up here and we're going to get you out. And I was like, all right. And my dad happened to be there with me at the time. And we're sitting and like a half hour goes by and I just look over and I go, I'm getting out of here, dad. Like, I've had enough. Bye. <laughs> and I just stood up and just walked out of the oh hospital with these giant sutures down the just side like of my head. Oh, my gosh. I was like, I've had enough. I feel good. And that was pretty much it. Now, I did want to circle back to one part which was when I was still in the ICU from the hemorrhage. Oh, yeah. And it was just a moment that, that really uh, stands out. Uh, and this is kind of a thank you to all the nurses and doctors. So I had, you know, some fantastic nurses. I had some not-so-good nurses. But uh, at one point, uh, you know, I was trying to be very upbeat, like, the whole time. And ma this is maybe my third or fourth day in the ICU, and I'm about to go get another cerebral angiogram. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a pretty intense procedure where they put a catheter into your um, femoral artery up into your brain and take pictures. Ooh. And this is how they do, like, the brain mapping. <laughs> yeah. Because they needed to basically know, and this along with the MEG, the magnetic electrogram, to see, like, what is the negative potentials if we do this surgery? Because if the tumor is more towards the left-sided motor control and you have a higher probability of losing motor control on the left side of your body, that's a lot worse than losing sensation. Sensation, for sure. So that was part of it. So I'm getting wheeled in for this procedure I know is going to suck. Mm -hmm. and it's Are you like, awake for that too? Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Ooh. And so I'm like, it's the first time where I started to feel, like, depressed. Like, yeah. my mood had changed. I was trying to be all thumbs up the whole mm -hmm. time. There's only so much you can do. Exactly. Yeah. And now it's been a while. You know, my my 
proverbial adrenaline is pretty much gone at this yeah. point. And so the nurse sees me and, you know, this guy had been seeing me every other day for the past three days. And now he can see that, like, my demeanor has changed. And so he starts to wheel me through the ICU and he just leans over and he says in my ear, you're the only one conscious on this floor, Brett. And it was kind of like one of those realizations where I looked over and I see people with like, you know, basically who are like in a vegetative state. Oh, and God. I'm like, you know yeah. what? It could always be worse. <laughs> you know, at least I'm the best on this floor. Yeah. You know, and that was just a really big moment that I like to like mention to people where it's like such a perspective thing. It is. That you can get down on yourself, but there's always someone in a worse situation. Th- that's also a credit to your optimism, I would say, because there could be a type of person or a type of thought pattern that would say, I'm next, mm-hmm. or, oh, that could be me, and stay or spiral further down into depression. And I think it really is a credit to your outlook on life to think, oh, I, I have a pretty good in comparison. Yeah. Like, that's it's something to take away about, like, maybe trying to work on that frame of mind, perspective shift, yeah. optimism in general for anyone listening, regardless of your brain surgery status. <laughs> right. And, you know, this may have not have been the smartest thing to do looking back, but when they asked me to fill out a forward directive, I actually declined. I was like, I am not dying. Good like, for you. I am not going to fill this out. Yeah. Uh, because I feel like if I do, it's going to be basically like admitting to all yeah. these potential negatives. Just and like welcoming was, that in. I yeah. mean, from the manifestation perspective, you did the right thing. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So, so that worked out. Um, but obviously, Looking back, if something happened, it would have been nice to have my affairs in order. To, right. You know. I'm sure that, like, I mean, I don't even want to, like, go this direction, but I'm sure, like, your family could have helped out or, you know, right. put so. things together in that instance. I think the most important thing was probably keeping your mindset positive or Definitely. as positive as possible, given yeah. everything you went through. Right. And it was kind of like a surprise where the person was like, hey, do you want to do this? Do you want to do a forward directive? And I was like, what's that? And he's like, well, it's kind of like a last will. And I was like, oh. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> like, okay. Uh, he yeah. wasn't expecting that. Yeah, it's sort of like when uh, they have you sign like an NDA or something mm-hmm. and you're in the hospital. It's a terrifying perspective. But right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. So to skip back, like post-surgery, you know, walked out 48 hours, Felt pretty good, and I would say maybe, like, I remember, like, 19, 20 days after, I was kind of, was first time out and about with some friends, went for a walk, went to the beach, and kind of was just, like, slowly recouping from then on. Right, like, slowly getting back to real life. Yeah. Was there anything, like, I'm sure there were a ton of things you couldn't do immediately after. I'm, I'm guessing exercise was not on the table for a while. Yeah, yeah. I lost a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. So, beforehand, I was probably, I'm, I'm about six. 5'11", and I weighed probably somewhere around like 170, 175. And after I recovered from the hemorrhage, I was like 145 pounds. I lost about 30 pounds. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I weighed as much as I did when I was in like eighth grade at that point. Yeah, oh, my God. So that that was rough. But And like you said, yeah, I think it was maybe a month or two before I was allowed to do like very light exercise um, and slowly built it back. So now I'm pretty much back to my normal healthy weight. And yeah, yeah, that was good. Wow. Okay. So that was that was the recovery process. Did you need any other kind of support? I'm just thinking if anyone else is going through a pretty intensive surgery, brain surgery, mm-hmm. this is a rare thing. But you know, if anyone's listening to this, thinking about what that experience was like, was there anything else you needed recovery wise besides like you know emotional support and and right. time? <laughs> right. Well, I do recall that when I was coming off of the pain medication, it was really tough because I think maybe I had taken it a little too long. I don't think I was like addicted to it or mm-hmm. I definitely wasn't abusing it. I was taking it For as sure. prescribed. But I mean, it's, I think it was oxycodone or yeah. cotton, whatever one that's mm-hmm. basically synthetic heroin. Yes. And I remember 
And they some, just give it out, truly. Right. Yeah. And I was just like, I'm just going to stop taking this because I kind of got to the point where I was like, I need to start making my recovery process. And I was like, you know, basically fear, feeling heroin withdrawals yeah. afterwards. And I just remember like feeling terrible and feeling really nauseous again. But, you know, Which is why people like, end up taking it again. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't have an addictive personality type or addiction runs in your family or genetics, like those withdrawal symptoms would have someone saying, I don't want to feel that. Right. I'll just take another one of these to get through it. And then mm-hmm. before you know it, you're taking it all the time. Yeah, so that is a become... really good thing to point out, actually. Thank yeah, you. That you can become dependent on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was tough. But some of the best advice I got. And shout out to my friend, John Shepard. He's been a trauma nurse for like a decade or so. Very smart individual. And I called him when I was in the hospital and was like, hey, man, like, I'm going through this. What should I do? And he basically said, like, the the main thing you need to keep in mind is self-advocacy. Like, you need to speak up for yourself in the hospital. That most people think there's some eye in the sky Mm -hmm. that's connecting all the dots for you. And the reality is that there isn't. And you're also not the only patient there. So he says, let's take it this way. Let's say that you're trying to get pain medication. And this actually happened to me at one point where my pain medication wasn't delivered. I was getting it like every hour. And it was maybe 10 minutes late. And on that ninth minute, I was writhing in pain. I'm talking worst pain of my life, like hitting my elbows on the metal bars because I just like can't sit Your body can't hold it. Yeah. Yeah. I was like freaking out. Yep. And he goes, well, think of it this way. When you need pain medication... The doctor prescribes it, tells the nurse, the nurse calls a department where that person tells someone else to fill the prescription, who then hands it off to someone to deliver it to the nurse that then administers it to you. Mm-hmm. So just to get pain medication, that's it's moving like five to seven different whole people. Circle. Right. right, okay. And every one of those people has more than one patient. And if one of those person people doesn't do their job correctly, the first person that's going to find out is you. It's not going to be the person who is waiting to, to get it because they don't know they're supposed to get it if they're not getting it. Right. So basically he said, if something's going wrong, you don't wait to see if something is going to, if someone's going to point it out. You need to make it known. Right. Like, hey, I was supposed to get this three minutes ago. Yeah. Like, this Push the panic button. Here. Exactly. Yeah. And that helped me so many times. Yeah. Just nurses who are not really like doing their neurological checks correctly telling the charge nurse, them having someone else come in made yeah. me feel way more comfortable. So totally. best advice I could give is straight out of his mouth, which is you need to be the one who's connecting all the dots. And that's for you or a loved one or right. a friend. You know, if they can't advise for themselves, someone needs to do it. And unfortunately, yeah. that's going to be one of the gaps in our medical system that is very present. And, you know, things things happen. We're all human. And yep. especially when there's, you know, multiple individuals involved in a sim- simple task who are also doing multiple other things at the same time, that things can happen. And it's just really important to make sure that you are aware that it's not like someone is just bringing you through the hospital system, that what you say can have a great impact on the level of service and care you're getting. It's so true, and it's so difficult when you are already so physically and mentally and emotionally compromised. Mm -hmm. You're in the hospital, you're in pain, and on top of that, on top of everything you're processing, you then also have to be the pilot, right? Right. You have to be in charge, and you have to be basically in charge of all of your own care. You're the director. Mm -hmm. You have to know what's happening and when, especially if you don't have anyone there with you. It's definitely a challenge, but I think... Like you said, if you are going into it with that mindset, with that in mind, with that context, hopefully it will be a little easier, even though it's not an ideal situation. Like 
in a perfect world, you would go into a hospital and everyone would just be taking care of you. You could turn your brain off. Right. You don't really have that luxury. And I don't know if that's, you know, a universal issue, an American issue, like whatever it is. It, if you're listening, 95% of you are in the U.S. <laughs> and if you have an experience like this, we talk a lot about medical advocacy in different ways, but this is one of the ways that you should really try to implement it if you are ever in a position where there are, like Brett said, a lot of dots to connect. Mm -hmm. If there are instances where you really need a specifically timed medication, pain relief, try to remember that the next time you are in one of these situations uh, because it's not something you can really learn on the fly. Right. It's like you yeah. can't teach someone how to give you CPR when you're having a heart attack. <laughs> right. And I think it goes with, you know, it's always better to have a plan than mm -hmm. no plan, even if it's a, a bad plan, yeah. it's better than no plan <laughs> Just, because at least yeah. you can go off of it. Yeah, think think through a little bit. Um, and it's very, very easy to say that when you're like sitting here comfortable in a room and listening to a podcast, whatever it is, and it's much harder when you're in crisis. Mm -hmm. But if you get it in your brain now, maybe it will come up later when you do need it. Right. That's my hope. And then the other side of that is you should, need to be nice because, again, yes. the people that you're informing of things that maybe they're not doing correctly are human beings, mm -hmm. and people, unfortunately, can have grudges or yep. they can have preferential treatment. And being nice, saying your please and thank yous can go a long way. Right. And that's, again, hard when you're in so much pain and you're scared, but it's always a good thing to practice. Right. And it can make a big difference from when a nurse walks in and is happy to see you or is reluctant to help you in any way. And, right. And... You know, I've heard of people that have had that, and I know that their personalities is, well, were you giving them an attitude kind of thing? Right. Because their jobs are hard. You know, it is not so an easy hard. gig. Oh, my gosh. Shout out to all my nurse friends listening right now and, and breaths. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is one of the most challenging, strenuous, emotionally wringing out the, the brain and body mm -hmm. kind of position to be in. I, I hear stories almost every day from one of my friends and the difficult things that she goes through and sees. And it's a really hard thing to do day in and day out. And they do it because they care about people. Mm -hmm. And they're putting their sanity and their lives on the line to help you. Even if uh, you don't feel like you're getting a nice attitude from the jump, the kindness, I think, does go a really long way. I remember just as a kid in the hospital for different reasons, my parents would like buy the nurses in and out. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> they always gave us like such kind treatment. And I think it's just... it. it it transcends like hospital visits and nurses, like that kind of lesson that I learned there was just kindness will get you further. Kindness will get you a little bit of extra help when you need it. And like, even if you get nothing out of the exchange, it's, it costs nothing to be kind. Yeah, hundred percent. I don't mean for this to sound preachy, but no. <laughs> I feel strongly. <laughs> yeah, it's a truth that it can go a long way. Yeah. So you ended up with brain surgery at 27, which is not on most people's bingo cards for their, <laughs> for the, their 20s. Yep. <laughs> Did they ever explain to you how this happened, how you ended up with this. Was it pure chance? Was it genetics? Does someone need to go get like a, a screening right now for, right. I can't remember what you called it, angioma? Yeah, cavernous angioma. Cavernous angioma. So what can and probably most likely caused mine specifically to proliferate and get larger is I did a lot of contact sports. Oh, So okay. I played a lot of football, a lot of lacrosse, mm -hmm. um, just pretty rambunctious individual in yeah. general, uh, skateboarding a mm -hmm. lot. So all those little, you know, semi-concussive, concussive forces can disturb these anomalies. And then when they leak or bleed, 
that's when they actually tend to get larger is what I was told oh. is that it's like a vicious cycle. So yeah. it leaks a little bit, gets a little bigger. Sort of like it, exercise. You tear down the muscle, it gets bigger. Yes. Okay. So, but with concussions. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, wow. looking back on things, the first time I can remember drinking like not a lot and mm-hmm. having a ridiculous hangover, I was about 22 years old. So looking back, it was about five years prior that I had symptoms of this happening. And an interesting thing is when I do my brain imaging, there's a probably about a golf ball-sized black sphere in my thing because what happens is when there's blood in your brain, the iron does not get reabsorbed. Oh, so you were talking a, about that blood reabsorption. You had to wait for the blood to reabsorb. Mm-hmm. But, but what, because this thing had been hemorrhaging on and off for five, at least five years, wow. there was a leftover staining, they call it, of this black iron. Wow. And when they told me about the surgery, they said, they actually said, we're about 90% sure that that, that's what it is. They're like, we believe it's a cavernous angioma. Now, it could be something else. It could be like a cancer. But like in general, from what we're seeing, this is probably what it is. So it's interesting also that they weren't even sure exactly what was going on going in. Sketch. (laughs) And then afterwards, that was one of my first questions. Like, so what was it? Oh, yeah, it was a cavernous angioma. It was what we thought. Yeah. And then another kind of funny aspect was at one point, um, one of my other neurosurgeons, because the surgeon that I saw was different than the one that I initially had when I was first admitted. And then because he retired when I had checkups, I had a different one. And the, the last one who I was working with basically said, are you comfortable with me taking your case study to a neurosurgeon convention? Because your cavernous angioma bled in a way that's very rare. And I, the exact words were, most people's leak, yours exploded. <laughs> so I had like a very Sick. <laughs> intense hemorrhage, yeah. which was rare for that uh, diagnosis. And was the hemorrhage itself caused by the alcohol? I believe so. so and it I, wasn't, a, you, like you said, it wasn't an excessive amount of alcohol. You had a few right. drinks. Yeah, I think I had three or four beers. It but wasn't it, like a going out night. It was like, hey, we're hanging out. I'm going to drink a couple beers with some friends. That's crazy. Yeah. And so what happens is, you know, alcohol thins your blood. Mm-hmm. So you become more likely to have a bleeding. Now, I may have had like a minor bump or something. Like I might have like, you know, just knocked, like your head knocked my head on like a cabinet that was open. I don't recall. Um, but they basically said like any sort of like even just like whipping your head around, like Whoa. minor whiplash could cause that to happen a little bit. And so then you start thinking back through like the past decade of your life. Like how many times did I hit my head? How many mm-hmm. times did I take ibuprofen? That's a blood thinner. Right. Or how many times did I have alcohol? So some signs that if you hadn't hemorrhaged, maybe some signs looking back that would have maybe indicated in retrospect that you had something going on. The first thing I think about is the disproportionate hangover. Exactly. Okay. So if someone is experiencing a really severe hangover for not a lot of alcohol, Mm -hmm. like let's say you have one or two drinks and you feel like you blacked out on 12 shots of Jack, like (laughs) maybe that's a time to visit your doctor and not just chalk it up to aging. Right. If the outcome doesn't match the input, Mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely a cause for concern and not to like freak people out if they, you know, have a bad hangover, but it's always better to go get it checked out than find out the way I did. Because if I had known prior, potentially I could have saved the whole hemorrhage aspect and just had the surgery. Right. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even think about that. Mm -hmm. So this was like compounded because of the hemorrhage. Which maybe wouldn't have happened. Yeah, okay, sorry. I'm processing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then something what else to done? think of yeah. is that I did play a lot of football, and I did have a pretty severe concussion when mm-hmm. I think I was probably like 13 or so, where I went in and had a CAT scan done. 
So I had a CAT scan when I was okay. somewhere around early teenager, and sometime between that and when I was 27, had this thing grow. Okay. So just because, you know, you're healthy at one point in life doesn't mean that something like this can't turn up within like a decade or so. Right. It's not like this linear trajectory of health. Right. So another thing I guess that brings up is if you have a history of concussions or high impact sports Mm -hmm. would be another reason to do regular checkups perhaps with a neurologist, especially if you have headaches. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think that's that's a good um, kind of standard, if you will, that anytime something with your head is feeling Mm -hmm. off, it might be a good idea to go get that checked out and just if for anything, just peace of mind so they right. can rule out anything that's going to be, you know, life-threatening in the moment. Yeah, especially if you have insurance, use it. I think a lot of people underutilize their insurance, mm-hmm. especially because the healthcare system is not straightforward. It's super complicated. I'm still, I have insurance and I'm still like on the phone with them like once a week trying to figure things out. It's not fun. Mm-hmm. But like you were saying, if you can advocate for your care before you get to the hospital, like... You don't need anyone to tell you, like, you have permission. I mean, technically, you have to get permission from a GP if you have an HMO. But you don't need permission to go schedule an appointment with a neurologist. If you have a history of concussions, if you've hit your head, if you have headaches, especially if you have headaches, I feel like we write off headaches quite a bit, Mm -hmm. but they can indicate something bigger or more collective. And if you have these disproportionate hangovers, those are all reasons. I'm not saying everyone listening to this has an angioma or anything wrong with their brain. I just think it's a good idea to be proactive with your health. Definitely. And if you have cause for concern, it's better to be safe than sorry. Exactly. Yep. Is there anything you would tell younger Brett before you went into all this? Uh, Don't think that you're invincible and that, and don't play off concerns. Don't try and convince yourself that things are okay, especially if it's a repeated thing. Yeah. Because it was definitely at least three or four times looking back, I can remember having a very distinct thought of, I am way more hungover than I should be right now. Right. And I just kind of convinced myself that things were fine. I think we can be scared to admit that there's something wrong with us. Totally. And that's just only going to make things worse in the long run. Yep. Like, I could have just simply said, I want to get some peace of mind and make sure that I'm okay. And then a lot of this negative stuff could have been prevented. Yeah, I think that's relatable across the board. Not really paying attention to our symptoms, kind of writing them off, not wanting to think it's a bigger deal, not Mm -hmm. wanting to get scared, which I understand that too. This isn't to like fear monger or make you more afraid of your symptoms. But personally, like I don't even trust some of the symptoms. I could be doubled over at like a level 11 pain and be like, I'm probably being a baby. (laughs) So so I relate to that a lot. And uh, I'm definitely trying to practice what I'm preaching right now of really being mindful of your body, tuning into those things and and just checking in whenever you can. I think a lot of times, especially in our very tech-driven world, we can be disconnected from our bodies. Mm -hmm. So this is just a PSA to connect a little bit more and take any kind of symptoms seriously. Yeah. And, you know, do it for yourself. Do it for your friends and family because, you know, it's... um, And if, you know, some people are afraid that it's going to cost them an arm and a leg to go in and get these procedures done, but it's obviously worth it in the long run because it doesn't matter how much money you have. If you're sliding down the scale of health, you're going to want to give as much money as you can to get that back. Mm -hmm. And so you might as well put up that money up front so that you have peace of mind and so that you can prevent anything that's going to be something that money can't fix. Yep. And I'm not a medical advisor or a financial advisor, but I'm pretty sure in the state of California, you can't go to collections for medical debt. So that's just like some food for thought or Mm -hmm. Google. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of people also don't know that uh, certain income levels can have the hospitals pay for a large amount. I mean, our health 
uh, field is a little bit of a racket, and so there's <laughs> so a lot bad. of upcharges, you know, again, yeah. paying $100 for a tile and all that kind right. of thing. The pricing is arbitrary, and you could probably call and just be like, uh, I watched someone do this actually on, it was either TikTok or Instagram. Someone called and said, my bill is 12000 but I could pay 6000 right now. It, like in oh, one yes. sum, if you can write off the rest. I and did then, this. You did this? Yep. So oh I, my God. I walked out with about $20,000 in debt. Holy shit. Now it was a quarter million was how much it cost, but oh my, my insurance God. paid for the vast majority. Right. And, you know, I watched a lot of videos on YouTube on like how to deal with that kind of debt. And it's exactly what you just said. Call them up and say, I can't spend this amount right now. But I can give you, you know, let's say like for, because there's different departments, like, hey, I owe you guys 10 grand, I can give you $10 a month, or I can give you $1,000 right now. Yeah. And sometimes they'll say, give me $10, and sometimes they'll say, give me the 1000 Yeah, and we'll write off the rest. Yeah, and if they say, give me the $10, then you just call them back like a few months later and say, hey, I'm paying you guys $10 a month right now. I can give you $1,000 right now and pay oh, it off. And so just you keep, keep at it. checking in. <gasps> this is yeah. gold. Yeah. And so I ended up paying only about a third of my total medical expenses. Good for you. Yeah. The fact that it's such a game really does piss me off. Mm-hmm. But it is what it is right now. This is the system we're working with. And this is really good information. Yeah. So there's, awesome. there's always a way out. And I didn't even go through the having the hospitals pay for it, which is another outlet. Mine, you know, some of them went to collections. Some of them went to just dealing with the hospitals. And yeah, they're, they are willing to take less because you can basically say, you know, either you guys get nothing or you right. get a portion of this. Right. Like this letter is going to go to collections or you can have this chunk of money right now. Yeah. Or I'm going to have to declare bankruptcy yeah. unless you can accept this as a form of payment ongoing. Dang, this is like a good playbook for mm-hmm. anyone going through medical debt. And I think that law is new, the one on not going to collections for medical debt in California. Yeah, because mine did go to collections. That's shitty. And this was, you know, about eight years ago. Yeah, so. I think it's pretty recent. Don't hold me to that. Like, please Google it and don't act as if I am God. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brett, this is above and beyond amazing. Thank you so much for sharing not only such a cool story, but incredible information that anyone can learn from and benefit from. So much about optimism and healthcare. We so appreciate you being here and being a listener. We love Smart Fit Method. So thank you for everything. Awesome. Thank you so much. And if you want to follow me on social media, my Instagram is the Ninja Shaman. And uh, maybe I can come back one day and we could talk about lucid dreaming and dream oh, interpretation. We love dreams. Awesome. Because uh, that's a, been a little hobby of mine for quite some time. And that's kind of where that name comes from, if you're wondering. But. Okay. Yeah. I was, was going to ask afterward. Yeah. So, we'll, we'll link to that in the description as well. So you can just click on that now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me here. It's been great talking. And uh, yeah, I, I had a great time here. Yay. I'm so glad you joined us today for another episode of This Is Fine. If you're in San Diego, Costa Mesa, or Kauai and interested in trying out the SmartFit method that we talked about earlier, tell them I sent you, especially if you're in La Jolla, and they'll set you up with a free workout session and a free body scan. And that workout session is going to kick your ass, but it's going to be really, really good. We'd love to hear from you and know what you want to listen to or learn more about next. So drop us a line at imfine at thisisfinepodcast.com. All right, I have to go take Stella for a walk. She won't stop pawing me for attention. I love you all so much, and we'll see you here next week. Avienzo. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of This Is Fine. I've been your host, Dominique Michelle Astorino. We're based in San Diego, recording in studio at DLI Productions in Pacific Beach with Emmy Award-winning sound designer Dan De La Isla. 
This is a comedy and advice podcast, but for legal reasons, this entire podcast is a joke and none of it is medical advice. To download the transcript or learn more, visit thisisfinepodcast.com. 